This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us for this latest podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. If you're new, please subscribe to receive brand new episodes to your podcast feed every Thursday. Today we're taking you inside the 650-year-long history of the Jewel Tower in Westminster. It's a building that stands right in the heart of London, within the complex of the UK Parliament, and opposite the much taller Victoria Tower, which sits at one end of the Houses of Parliament, with Big Ben at the other. And it's a building that not many people have heard of, but you've almost certainly seen it. Joining us now to uncover the Jewel Tower's rich history is Head Historic Properties Curator for English Heritage, Dr Jeremy Ashby. Hello, Charles. It's lovely to be with you again. Yes, well, thank you for coming on. And this is a really interesting subject. I just mentioned, of course, that listeners will probably have seen the Jewel Tower, even if they've actually not heard of it before. Why would they have seen it? If they've watched the news is the short answer, because the Jewel Tower probably appears on television more often than any other English heritage property. And the reason for that is, as you've said, it's directly over the road from the Houses of Parliament. So quite often, if in the recent history of of our country, politicians argue against one another and every so often someone really gets very upset about what's going on or he he or she even lose their job. And in such moments, quite often they will storm out across the road to the bit of grass called College Green. They will stand on a bit of concrete where it's actually there always for the purpose and there are electrical points that are set up for the TV cameras to set up their cameras And they will film an interview about what's been going on in Parliament. And the Jewel Tower will appear directly behind their left shoulder. It's a quite tall stone building. It's got round windows that you see in the wall that's facing the TV cameras. It probably stands something like 50 feet high. And it looks quite different to all the other buildings around. with quite rough looking stonework. And I'm sure lots of people look at it, the building in the background, and think, oh, I wonder what that is. And in this podcast, we will be telling you the answer. The general area, this is College Green. Are there any other things that people should look out for in this area? Yes, there are. I mean, it's actually, it's the no man's land between two really, really monstrous buildings and and huge institutions. That is to say, the Palace of Westminster standing on one side on the eastern side. And then there's this bit of grass in the middle with the Jewel Tower and a few other buildings. And then immediately to the west of that, which you can actually see quite closely, is the precinct of Westminster Abbey. And the Jewel Tower sits right in the middle of that. It's actually, as you say, on one side, on the south side, there's there's a broad expanse of grass. On the north side, it's actually a bit more hemmed in. There's a very large, quite beautiful classical building, six and seven Old Palace Yard is its number, that actually stands you know, only feet away from the Jewel Tower. And the Jewel Tower itself, its precinct, has got a few other features in, and we'll be talking about them a little bit later, features that were actually recovered by archaeologists in the second half of the 20th century that date back many centuries and explain a little bit about the origins of the building and, and its setting when it was first constructed. So a, a tower that, that is at the centre of politics still. In yes, it is. But I often, when I've, I've lectured about the Jewel Tower many times, and I sometimes used to talk about it as the building in the background, and I'd explain, just as, I, as we've talked about, how it fits in with the TV political interviews. It's a building in the background to them. 
But actually, I think it's close to the heart of things, but it has perhaps you might almost imagine a walk-on part in a number of stories. And as we'll be explaining, it's actually passed through a number of successive phases, which are very different to one another. And in all of them, it actually does some very important things, but it's not in itself the main attraction. And I think its story is quite a telling one. It illuminates a number of really quite interesting themes in the history of our country, and particularly around the institutions about how our country has actually governed over the centuries. Well, it's certainly been a constant for 650 years. Um, Can you describe a bit more about how the tower appears? You said that it was about 50 feet tall, quite rough stone. There were some windows. Yes, it's not a very big building, but it is a tower. It's tall and thin. Its shape, when you actually see it in these TV interviews, its its shape looks quite plain. It's just one face that's facing you. Actually, if you go round the corner a little bit and look from, as it were, from the Palace of Westminster direction, directly at it, you'll see that actually it's L-shaped. And that's actually quite significant. That responds to the setting when it was originally built. The stonework, actually, some of it's quite rough. Some of it is is, is actually much finer, but it's all essentially medieval stonework, apart from the doors and windows, which have all been replaced in the 18th century in quite white Portland limestone. They're very different to the honey-coloured but a bit rougher Kentish ragstone of the bulk of the structure. There's some bits of it that aren't in stone at all. So if you look at the top of the building, its parapet is a plain, straightforward brick parapet, and there's a turret at its northern end, which actually projects above the roof. And uh, we don't open it to the public because actually the parapet is quite low. It wouldn't be safe to do it. But that turret actually has a spiral staircase that can take you all the way from the ground level onto the two upper floors of the building and actually continues up onto the top of it. So the outside of it, it's relatively plain, but you can see that it's different to some of the other buildings, as I say. And I think that difference, at least to some people who've got their eye in would give you at least a hint that actually you're looking at a building that's quite old. And as I'll be explaining, it actually very substantially dates to the 1360s. So it's been with us for, for, for many centuries. Has it changed much over those centuries? It has changed both internally and externally in response. And we can explain those changes. We can understand why they were carried out because those changes were made in response to the different functions that it had to offer. So, But anyway, what I've talked about so far is the the outside of the building. There is a door at ground level from the small garden that that, that stands immediately in front of it with a few picnic tables. So I would uh, invite you all to come in through that door. And as you pass through the door, the first thing you see immediately in front of you is the, the foot of the spiral staircase running up to the top of the building. But if we just turn to our left and go through another door, we are on the ground level of the building. We actually find ourselves in, in, in one of the unsung masterpieces of architecture in London. It's a very, very fine space from the Middle Ages because it's got above our head an absolutely beautiful, very finely made vaulted ceiling with an elaborate pattern of vault ribs that spring out from the walls of the building and cross over with one another. And where they meet, there are elaborately carved circular stones called roof bosses 
And this vault is, is pretty well perfect from the Middle Ages. It's an absolutely wonderful thing. So that's quite showy you know, as a building. And the interior on each floor has got one main room. It's only got this kind of elaborate stone vault on the ground floor. On the upper floors, it's a bit different. But if you go all the way along that room to its far end, there's another little door on each floor that goes into a smaller room on the ground floor that's got the toilet for the staff and uh, some other sort of back of house facilities but the smaller rooms on the upper floors can be gone into so as i say it's an l-shaped plan building and on each floor it's got two rooms a big room and a little room just off it to the side and there are fireplaces in the rooms as well aren't there i believe there were originally fireplaces on each floor and you can see the fireplaces on the upper floor the two upper floors the fireplace on the ground floor was actually lost over the centuries and was filled in later. So that's uh, the where that where that was is actually hidden by. I think it's uh, presently there's there's some some shop fittings that are actually on on the wall, the wall against that. So you wouldn't be able to see that. But that's a quite important part of understanding the structure. So on each floor there are quite large windows, making all of the rooms quite light. There were fireplaces, so they were not uncomfortable places to be and actually on each floor there were in the middle ages there were latrines as well there were toilets on the ground level there is still a modern toilet there the site of the toilets on the upper floors have have since disappeared but we know where they were and these were fairly simple toilets they were actually just a, a seat with a hole in them and within the quite thick stone walling of the jewel tower there are chutes that run down and an outlet at the bottom of the chute where formerly there was a water-filled moat around the outside of the jewel tower and what came naturally dropped down and was washed out into the moat. That's something else that uh, is worth noting when you first arrive because when you're walking over the road perhaps you've done your tour of the Houses of Parliament and you're heading off to the jewel tower to investigate you sort of get this sense that there was maybe water around it at one stage. That's right, that's right. And it's now shingle. When the jewel tower was first restored in the 1950s and 60s, because they'd done quite a lot of research about it, they actually found quite good documentary evidence that there was a moat around the outside and that that moat was once connected to the River Thames. Now, that would not be possible anymore because the 19th century buildings of the, the Houses of Parliament, the Palace of Westminster, actually stand in the way. So that connection has been completely severed. But they had grand dreams of putting water back into the moat. For some years they did it, but it was actually quite difficult to keep the water quality what it needed to be. It actually became quite green and uh, lots of of things were uh, quite unpleasant things were growing in it. So they they took the decision several years ago now, in fact, before I joined English Heritage, that they would keep the moat dry. But the fact that this quite small tower had a moat around uh, two sides of it is actually connected to its first documented function. And that's the function that we still refer to in the name of the building. We refer to it as the Jewel Tower. So, well, let's go straight back into the very origins of the Jewel Tower then, Jeremy. When was it first sort of conceived and built? It was first built in the year 1365. It didn't take very long to build. They probably managed to do it in about two years that's quite well documented. And actually, we have archaeological evidence for it as well. And it was built as part of a much larger complex that I'm going to refer to as the Palace of Westminster. So I think I need to do a little bit of of scene setting, a little bit of explanation. 
when nowadays we talk about the Palace of Westminster, we think of the Houses of Parliament, which is its official name is the Palace of Westminster. And the Houses of Parliament, they have old bits in them, but they're very largely created in the 19th century. There was a massive fire in 1834 that destroyed quite a lot of what was there earlier and the present Houses of Parliament replaced that. The Palace of Westminster though goes back a lot further than that. In fact it even goes back further than the time of the Norman Conquest. We think that the last Anglo-Saxon kings of England such as Edward the Confessor did have a quite large and elaborate house or complex in Westminster which was dignified by the name palace. Palace is not actually a term that's used of very, in the Middle Ages, is not used of many places. It's something that's referred to, bishops' houses are called palaces. But there was only one royal palace in England, and this was it. The name actually is a reference to a bit of ancient Rome, the Palatine Hill, which was where the residences of Roman emperors were. So to call something a palace, it's very, very grand. And as I say, there was only one palace. It was called Westminster. Originally, under the Anglo-Saxons and under the first Norman kings, it was where they lived. It had a hall, it had a chamber, it had a chapel, it had kitchens, and it was the principle of the places where they lived. But over time, if you're royal, you attract other functions to it. Big institutions come to you. Your opinion has to be asked about things. You have to ask people's advice. You have to hold councils, you have to hold parliaments, you have to have places where the finances will be properly administered. And over time, the Palace of Westminster ceased to be just this simple house where people lived and became a place where officially the government of England, a royal government, but the government of England was centred. And the palace grew physically massively over time. So this is a process that happens over over several centuries, certainly in the 11th century, an enormous building, which actually substantially still survives, called Westminster Hall was built. And people who recently have, have watched on the television the vigil over the coffin of the late Queen Elizabeth will have seen that laid out for several days in Westminster Hall and thousands and thousands of people passed by it to pay their respects. Westminster Hall the building where that happened was part of the medieval royal palace. There was a chapel, and part of that, actually, the cellar of that still survives, though it's not open for many visitors to see. It's actually a private part used for the lords and the members of parliament. But if you ever have the privilege of going to see it, the chapel of St. Mary Undercroft, it's a really beautiful thing. And next to where that chapel was is a cloister, a very elaborate building from the late 15th and early 16th centuries, which is completely private now. A lot of civil servants actually work at desks around this cloister. But again, it's obviously part of a medieval building. And the fourth surviving part of the medieval Palace of Westminster is our building, the Jewel Tower, which is open to the public, which actually stands not within the main complex of the Palace of Westminster. It stands a little bit to the west, and it's now separated from the Houses of Parliament by a road, Abingdon Street. But formerly, it would have actually been connected. And between the buildings of the medieval Palace of Westminster and the Jewel Tower, there was a garden. We know this, it's described many times. The Jewel Tower was built in the 1360s, and it's referred to first as the new tower at the end of the King's Garden. Now, what was it for? Was it actually originally intended for 
any function to do with royal residence or anything of this kind? Well, we think that it was, but actually probably only tangentially. And the modern name that we give it, the Jewel Tower, makes a reference to this. It's earlier on, is referred to sometimes as the Jewel House. And what it was, was a place of security within the complex of the Palace of Westminster, where some of the most precious and important of royal possessions could be kept. They are referred to often in documents as jewels, but actually quite often there are probably some things that we would call jewels, some items of, you know, like crowns or or diadems. But actually quite a lot of what was kept in the jewel towers described in inventories, it was what we might call plate. These are goblets, these are bowls, these are plates, and they're made of precious metals, particularly silver, though some also gilt in gold, which would have been used actually at royal banquets in the Palace of Westminster and in a number of other places. And the Jewel Tower was built as the place where these things could be kept in complete security. Wow, fascinating. So the tower could almost be renamed as the Banquet Tower or uh, the Crockery Tower. Or Yeah, the Crockery Tower might be a bit closer to it, although I have to say, I mean, this is not quite as, as romantic as we might like to think. <laughs> I think Jewel Tower for us is a very, very good name for it. But, mm. you know, if you like, it's uh, a, a former chief executive of English Heritage once said, it's like imagining that a modern star architect like Zaha Hadid had built a sort of secure repository for the Bank of England. It's something like that. It's a quite sort of odd, you know, thing for something that's got to work. But actually, the fact that it's designed to quite high standards, and it's got this elaborate vault inside, there's something funny else that's going on. And I'll explain a little bit about what I think would originally have happened inside the tower in a minute. But there's one important elephant in the room that's really got to be got out the way. The fact that it has the name Jewel Tower, and it's a royal building, instantly, I think, throws up some connection with something that, of course, everyone knows about, the crown jewels, which are presently kept in the Tower of London. Were the crown jewels ever kept in the Jewel Tower? Well, that's the question, isn't it? (laughs) It's a good question. I'm very sorry to say that the answer is no which is a real disappointment to me and I'm sure to many other people. The jewel crown jewels are not now kept in the jewel tower here and they never actually have been. We could actually do a whole other episode about the history of the, of the crown jewels and maybe we, we could do that sometime because it would actually be quite fun because it does involve actually another of our properties that's adjacent. But the crown jewels were not kept in the jewel tower. What was kept in the jewel tower was a sort of different class of, of object They were very precious things, but they were not parts of the sacred regalia as the crown jewels are. The crown jewels are almost regarded as religious relics. And quite often there was this idea that actually the crowns themselves had been left over by ancient saintly kings like Saint Edward the Confessor. And in fact, you know, one of the crowns with which King Charles III will be crowned next year is called Saint Edward's crown, though in fact it wasn't made anything like in the the reign of Edward the Confessor. The present St. Edward's crown was actually made in the 1660s after the restoration of the monarchy. But those sacred objects, the crown, the orb, the scepter, the things that are used in coronations, they are different to what was kept in the jewel tower. What was kept in the jewel tower was, as it were, the personal property of the monarch or of other members of his family. And they were intended to be used much, much more regularly. 
So, for example, we have some documents from the 15th century that describe items from the jewel tower being taken out, being taken away to other properties, being taken to Windsor Castle, being taken to Eltham Palace, interestingly being taken to Berkhamsted Castle, it's another one that we look after, for royal feasts around the religious festival of Whitson. And I think what we have to imagine is that these things were taken out to be used either to be actually eaten off of Oran tables, or some of them would probably be so elaborate that they might not actually be used, but they would be, as it were, placed on display in the banquet on a sideboard or buffet next to the high table. And of course, you know, this line of glittering, very elaborate bits of gold and silverware, you know, it really shows how sophisticated and how rich the monarch as the the host of this banquet really was. So, It's a very important part of of making the king and members of his family look the part, making them look absolutely fantastic. All this time, the crown jewels themselves were actually kept just next door in a room called the Pix Chamber, which is part of the complex of Westminster Abbey. That's where they were kept right through the Middle Ages, waiting for the time when they would be taken out and used at coronations. And I should just say that the Pix Chamber is actually another one of our properties. English Heritage members can go into Westminster Abbey and go and see the Pix Chamber and the Chapter House. We look after both of them, actually, within the Abbey complex. And the Pix Chamber next to the Chapter House, which is a quite low, vaulted, almost subterranean room, was the strong room where the crown itself and other items of the regalia were kept. Right, and that's to the west of the Jewel Tower. Can you be a a non-member and access this room as well? Yes, you can, but you would have to pay to get admission into the whole of Westminster Abbey. It's part of the Westminster Abbey ticket. English Heritage members can just present their English Heritage cards and be let into the Chapter House and Picks Chamber independently. And I I have to recommend it. It's well worth doing, actually. They're, they're, They're well worth seeing. But that's how that fits into the story of the Jewel Tower. So Similar, very, very important things that were kept in the Jewel Tower, but not actually the crown jewels themselves. Sure. So that's that cleared up for anyone who wanted to ask that question. Who was the original monarch then associated with the Jewel Tower and who commissioned it? It's King Edward III, who reigns for a very long time in the middle of the 14th century. So he comes to the throne in 1327 and he dies in 1377. So at a quite ripe old age. He's relatively old by the time he gets to build this. It's rather interesting that actually just about at the point when he's having the jewel tower built marks a point in which he decreases the amount of time that he spends living in the Palace of Westminster because he built himself some very nice, very, very fine other residences within the vicinity of London, but not actually in Westminster. And he was spending more time there. So, for example, Windsor Castle, which is a very ancient foundation, but Edward III had rebuilt an awful lot of that in his reign. And by the time the Jewel Tower is finished, he's actually spending quite a lot more time in Windsor. So I think the important thing about the Jewel Tower is is it's not just keeping stuff to be used in the Palace of Westminster. It's, as it were, it's almost like the sort of logistical hub from which these things will be sent out and they'll be brought back. And I stress this because that has some connection with actually how the tower itself may have been used and what they built it for. As I said, it has a beautiful, very elaborate vaulted ceiling, which was intended to be looked at. Actually, if you look closely at the ceiling bosses, you'll see that there's all sorts of 
interesting optical illusions or almost jokes in them that the bosses, the principal, the big bosses in the center of the vault, when you look at them in the first instance, they look like they've got patterns of flowers. And it's only when you look really closely that you'll see that actually one of them has got four quite grotesque human faces and that what look like the petals of flowers are actually their gaping open mouths with tongues and teeth. There's another one that looks like a pattern of roses, and it is a pattern of roses, but hidden behind the roses are a whole number of lions and monsters around. So you wouldn't do this if it was actually just the room where you put these precious possessions in and then you lock the door behind them. People were actually using this space, and that's why it's provided with toilets, why it's provided with fireplaces. And it's very clear actually what happened. As I said, stuff was kept there in security, but it often didn't stay there for very long. It would be taken out to be used. And as well as being a secure strong room, this was the office of the people who were actually doing the looking after of these possessions. And they belonged to a department of the royal household called the Royal Wardrobe, which sounds like they should be looking after clothes, but it wasn't just clothes that they looked after. The Royal Wardrobe looked after all sorts of things, all sorts of stuff. And it's quite clear that as these items of goblets and plate were taken out to be used, they would have to be signed out and they would have to be given to the people that would carry them, often with an armed escort. Because, of course, you know, these things, if they were stolen, you know, they'd be a good target for thieves. So, you know, if they were taken out to another property, you know, armed soldiers would go with them. And the clerk in the jewel tower would have to, as it were, sign them off his list. He, he hadn't got them anymore. They'd gone away to someone else. And then they'd come back and he'd sign for them again. But he'd also check them and see, oh, it's interesting that this has now got a bit dented as it's been used in this place. So I'll make a note of that. A bit has been broken off. Oh, what are we going to do about that? And he would make arrangements with the gold and silversmiths of London to actually come in and mend these items or sometimes replace them. And this seems to have been a full-time job. It's quite an important job. We know, for example, that the first keeper of the jewels and plate in the Palace of Westminster was a man called William Sleaford. And we've got quite a lot of his documents that describe this whole process. And I'm certain, as certain as I could be, that the ground floor of the jewel tower was William Sleaford's office. It's where these things were first signed for and were properly looked after and where he made bargains with the people that were manufacturing new objects or mending old ones. So it would have been quite a busy place, I think, and lots of people coming and going, looking after this material. Yeah, that opens up a question, uh, an off-piste one, so I hope you don't mind me asking this one. Obviously, in its original days, it would have been surrounded by water, this moat, and had that connection to the Thames. Was there ever any risk uh, security-wise overnight? Would it have had to have 24-hour security and, and guards? Charles, it's not an off-piste question at all. It's very interesting and it's, 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 it's music to my ears because yes is the answer that it did have to be looked after. But the design of the building itself is quite interesting and actually helps us on our way. First of all, when we, we archaeologists and historians have looked closely at the Jewel Tower, we can see that actually some of the windows that are there now, which, as I've said, the windows now are in, in an 18th century form, some of the windows that are there now were not part of the original structure. And on the ground floor, it only had two ground floor windows that were actually 
facing to the interior of the palace, facing into the garden. They did not, it did not have any windows facing outwards. So it was a completely blank wall that Thebes wouldn't have been able to get into. What we can also tell from the, there's a very good document, a building account that William of Sleaford had drawn up at the time when the Jewel Tower was being built. And very clearly, there was substantial iron bars and a sort of cage of iron bars was originally part of the design to be built over each of the windows. So you wouldn't be able to break the windows to get in. And once you'd got through the door and been able to get to the spiral staircase, even there, you probably weren't home and dry because the top floor, we can tell, in fact, it's still got one surviving 14th century door, which is amazing. But we can actually see from the stone setting of the door that there was originally a second, so it was were a second wooden door that's now gone, opening out into the stairwell. So you would actually have to be able to get through two skins, as it were, of locked doors, even within the interior of the jewel tower, in order to get into the room on the top floor. And I think I must be that the top floor was where some of the most important and precious stuff was kept. So yes, yeah, security really does seem to be actually quite key to their thinking when the jewel tower was designed and built. That's really fascinating. So I think if we try to all of us imagine it in our mind's eye in its original guise in 1365 and and, and later years, it's kind of like a, a mini tower in an island, really, with quite a significant sort of austere appearance with those fewer windows, if you, as you've been describing. And if you did get through any doors, you'd have a lot of locked doors in front of you. That's absolutely right. I mean, there's a quite interesting and telling anecdote, which I really would quite like to share with everyone from the early days of the construction of the Jewel Tower. And it seems to talk about actually the circumstances in which the Jewel Tower was built, that in building the Jewel Tower, King Edward III and his officials in the Palace of Westminster seem actually to really upset their neighbours quite badly. And in particular, they upset the monks of Westminster Abbey just to the west. Because in expanding the royal palace, building this beautiful garden and building the jewel tower and its moat on the edge of that garden, they were encroaching on land that the monks of Westminster felt that they owned. And the monks were not at all pleased about this. They felt that this was not just unacceptable high-handedness of the king and his officers, but actually it was also an offence against God. And you don't offend against God without there being quite serious consequences. And in Westminster Abbey's muniment room, Westminster Abbey have got lots of documents. There's one document called the Black Book of Westminster Abbey. I know I, I always, when I give these podcasts, I, I have documents with exotic names, and this is one, the Black Book of Westminster Abbey. And the Black Book has got a couple of anecdotes about building the Jewel Tower, which I think are absolutely lovely. And for any fans of ghost stories, the one I'm about to read you, I think it's got more than a little of the ghoulish quality of a ghost story by M.R. James, who, as we're approaching Christmas, he used to write ghost stories for his friends at Christmas. And M.R. James, as my friend Michael Carter might be able to tell you in a future podcast, was a great scholar. And he'd actually read many of these documents. I'm sure he knew the story I'm about to tell you. Anyway, this is a story about expanding the garden of Westminster Palace and the construction of the Jewel Tower. So, I'm going to read it to you. 
In the time of King Edward III, a certain keeper of the Lord King's palace named William Ashbourne unjustly seized for the king's use a certain close or area belonging to the prior of Westminster, and here he made a garden with a pond in it in which to keep live fish. It so happened that one day around the feast of St. Peter Ad Vincula, which is in August, William Ashbourne invited some of his Westminster neighbours to dinner, and he prepared his table with a large pike caught in this fish pond. As they sat down to dinner, this William quickly took some of the pike, but as soon as he had swallowed two or three mouthfuls of the fish, he began shouting almost dementedly in these words, It is trying to choke me! After crying out in pain many times in this way, suddenly he fell to the ground and died a wretched death without the last rites. He was carried into the parish church of St. Margaret, buried in the choir because of the dignity of his office. It was said that this came to pass because he had confiscated the meadow and garden of the infirmary and the prior of Westminster's garden for the use of King Edward III, making no compensation to the Church of Westminster. So there you are. Don't <laughs> mess with, with the, uh, the land of Westminster Abbey or bad things will happen to oh, you. you will, re- religious you know, vengeance. It's pretty good, isn't it? Anyway, but the circumstances of all of this, William Ashbourne, you know, we can date his time. He dies in the middle of the 1360s. And this is about expanding the garden and the construction of the jewel tower. And I won't read all of you, but actually in the same book, there's another one about the same someone else who dies for the wrath of God in the same operation. And that one specifies, it actually says, where stands the Lord King's Tower and the small garden nearby? So it's, you know, it's certainly it's the same area that we're talking about. It's a pretty good story, isn't it? I suppose it's also a good way of keeping vagabonds and thieves and potential criminals and uh, heist related people away from the tower. These <laughs> To say that the whole area was cursed. Uh, yes, I don't yeah. know about if, if that was so, but it is certainly the case that William Ashbourne did indeed die. So, um, yeah. Interesting. It's certainly a good story. Never, never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, I, I, that, I, that, that is one of my mottos in life, as you know. So there we are. But as it happens, I mean, I think quite a lot of this story is factual. And certainly, I mean, it may be exaggeration, but it's it's telling us something. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm clear enough about that the tower was built in that purpose. Whether it was originally built for the storage of jewels in this way, I think we can't tell. The name Jewel Tower, we only get it in documents a little bit later. But I do think, I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in this because I think that the architecture of the building with, with you know, its, its small number of windows, the iron bars, the doors and all that lot. Actually, I think it's a very sensible place for keeping things of, of this kind. And the fact that it's at the bottom end of the King's Garden, as it happens, I think was actually a quite convenient place for it. As I say, the moat was connected to the River Thames. And I think we should imagine that actually the boats from which some of this stuff would have been carried away to other properties, just simply sail out of the river into the moat, and that you could go up through a couple of stairs and, and a gate in the, in the wall of the garden. And, and archaeologists, we've excavated these stairs. They certainly exist. And you'd be able to get straight into the Jewel Tower and talk to William Sleaford or his successor and actually sign off the stuff that you were bringing back and, and job done, that it's, it's back in security. And that's what it continued to do from the 14th to the early years of the 16th century. 
Jeremy, you've tantalised us with um, some reading of a passage there and some other documentary evidence. And that leads us on to our next section, really, to talk about how else the jewel tower was used. It did have a second use, not just storing valuables, but also storing something else entirely. So could you tell us a bit more about that? It did. This is the second of its three lives. And the use of it as, as the repository for jewels continues through until the 16th century. But then things change. Part of the reason for that is actually a fire. This is not the only fire we're going to have, but there was a fire in the year 1512. That's in the reign of King Henry VIII. And it's difficult for us to know exactly how terrible the fire was. It clearly did not touch the jewel tower. It didn't burn the jewel tower down, but it does seem to have done quite a lot of damage to other bits of the Palace of Westminster, probably within that general area of the complex. Certainly what happened is that Henry VIII really scaled down the use of the Palace of Westminster as one of his residences. And a few years after this, as many people will know, he actually builds himself in the Westminster area a much more elaborate and substantial palace called the Palace of Whitehall. He he took over a property of his former minister, Cardinal Thomas Wolsey. He said, I'm having that, thank you very much. And in fact, I'm also going to have some rooms within Whitehall for my next girlfriend, Anne Boleyn, who later becomes his second queen. So Whitehall takes over from Westminster. Westminster becomes not really a place where monarchs will live. And in fact, it never again became a place where monarchs would live. Increasingly, it's used by institutions. For the Jewel Tower itself, there are a few fairly mystery years. We know exactly what was going on in the Jewel Tower in the year 1547. That's the year when Henry VIII died, because there is an inventory that's taken of all of the king's goods. And actually, there's a long list of stuff that's being kept in the Jewel Tower. And it's not really precious things anymore. The Jewel Tower had become something of a junk room. So it contained certain items of furniture. It contained items of clothing. And some of them, once upon a time, I think might have been quite expensive things. But generally speaking, it wasn't stuff that was going to be used anymore. So there's lots of descriptions about how these things are now looking a bit sort of old and tattered. And it's a very random collection of things. I mean, you know, there's bed hangings, there's walking sticks. And uh, rather interestingly, there's a reference to a couple of dolls, which do seem to have been toys that the king's daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, might have used. So, you know, these things are quite interesting, but it's not quite as grand as the material that had been kept in the Jewel Tower in its heyday. And then after that, we really don't know a great deal until we get right to the end of the 16th century in the reign of Elizabeth I and in the 17th century in the reign of James I. And then we come into really properly into the second use of the jewel tower which is to keep the junk room function has largely gone and it's been replaced by documents and very specifically not the documents of royalty the documents of the institution that's now governing england the documents of parliament indeed and we can actually see this as a visitor to the jewel tower we can go up to one of the upper levels and you can see these scrolls which are attached to sort of wood, and you can read a story that uh, explains what you're looking at. Uh, That's exactly right. I mean, it's not the real documents. These are, these are replicas. But we wanted to only make reference to this, this function, which is actually an important function, and it kept the jewel tower going for many centuries. 
So yes, the displays on the first floor, and particularly in the smaller of the two rooms on the first floor, have been talking about this. Now, we know quite a lot, actually, about the details of how documentary storage worked. First of all, the institution that was looking after them, or the officer mostly in charge, I suppose I should say, was a figure called the Clerk of the Parliaments, the plural, Parliaments. And that's just one of those sort of English oddities that the Clerk of the Parliaments is actually only responsible for one of the two Houses of Parliament. He's, as it were, the person who records the events in the House of Lords specifically. It's a post actually that still exists. And at least in in the, the 17th century, the Clerk of the Parliaments was responsible for looking after the records. He was responsible for making it possible for members of the House of Lords, for the Lords themselves to consult them if they needed to. And for a fee, which he would keep and, and, and sometimes would pay to the people working for him, people like you and me could say, who might have an interest in things could say, OK, can I have an official authenticated copy of a certain record in there? And we'd pay a fee to the Clerk of the Parliaments and he would get one of his clerks to actually get the original out and write down a fair copy and they would authenticate it saying, you know, this is truly what it says. So it's actually, again, like the Jewel Tower, it's quite a busy place. There's quite a lot of coming and going, but this is where records are kept. And it's very sensitive stuff. These are what goes on in the House of Lords and what goes on in the committees of the House of Lords can be very important for the making of law within this country. So it was important that the documents were kept safe. The fact that the tower was surrounded by a moat, that's quite a good thing. The moat is is still, you know, they're trying to keep it going. So that's good for security. But what they were now really scared of wasn't theft, but fire. Yes, and of course we've mentioned already that the building had uh, several fireplaces, so having open fires and documents lying around, that must have been a bit of a hazard. Yeah, that's pretty bad, isn't it? And it's not actually just that it's uh, got open fires in them. It actually, between the bigger and the little room in each floor, the partition wall was originally in timber, which also will burn. So that's all not looking quite good. And over the 17th and 18th centuries, we see a number of changes being made to the physical fabric of the Jewel Tower to try to mitigate the risk of fire. And some of this we can see now. So if you go up to the first floor and you go into the main room and you look at the door into the smaller room, you'll see a couple of interesting things about it. First of all, the wall that separates the two rooms is in brick. And that is a 17th century change that's made. And the door itself bears the date 1621 and the cipher of King James I, who was the king in that time. And the door itself is made of iron, which again is a, is a, you know, is a material that will not burn. So that you know, is part of the kind of changes that are made for actually keeping the records and the building itself safe from fire. But they were always afraid of fire. And they were also afraid that the environment inside the tower was not all it should be. I think they muddled through in the 17th century tolerably well. They made these these changes to the smaller of the rooms in the first floor in the 1620s. But then they didn't actually do an awful lot further to it. But we know quite a lot about the tower in the early 18th century. Its poor condition had become actually a national scandal. 
And there are a number of descriptions of people being sent to go and have a look at the jewel tower and what they found. They found that the documents, there were too many documents, that they were, the tower was kind of bursting at the seams. The documents themselves were in disarray. They weren't properly being looked after. Some of them, as you say, were actually just left, you know, strewn around the place. And so, so actually it was, a, it was a fire waiting to happen. And a number of things needed to happen. First of all, they needed to do some repairs to the building. And during those repairs, they put in more windows than there had been. And that's a very good thing to do for such a building. Natural light is good. It's much better than candlelight that you would need if the interior were quite dark. So they make it lighter by putting in some windows that had not been there before. And even the medieval windows that were there were now replaced in a little bit larger windows with, with glazing a new window forms in, in Portland limestone. So they don't look like the medieval windows anymore, though some of them are replacing them. The crenellated, the battlemented brick parapet of the medieval tower was starting to fall down, so they replaced it with a brick parapet. They did put in a few new, a few replacement fireplaces. And I mean, you might think, you know, making changes, make, increasing the light, but then actually putting in more fireplaces, that's a bit counterintuitive. But that was actually, and it's specifically said, it's so that members of the Lords themselves can come and consult the documents as they're supposed to do, actually in comfort, that the interior otherwise would be quite damp and cold, and they really wouldn't be able to do it. So they're doing that. And one of the most expensive items in the bills for this is they make a complete new set of wooden cupboards, which are called presses in the documents, for the proper ordering of the documents. Those changes are made in the early 18th century. And some architects, that, some people that we know about were actually involved in this. Christopher Wren was one of the people that was sent to actually have a look at the building in the early 18th century to actually see what needed to be done to it. And we think that the building works to the jewel tower itself, the new windows, may have been done by another quite well-known architect of the period, Nicholas Hawksmoor. Certainly in their shape, they have some associations with some of the architecture of churches that Nicholas Hawksmoor had built around that time. So, you know, it's, it's a building that's important to important people, and they can get some of the best people in the country to work on it. So as we get into the middle of the 18th century, the Jewel Tower itself is, is being properly looked after. It's doing quite well, and it's doing the job that it's supposed to do. And this continues through the 18th century, it continues through the beginning of the 19th century. And it's in the 19th century that we have the second of the great fires that take place in the history of, of Westminster. And the Jewel Tower appears in a quite almost as a, in a heroic place for this. The year is 1834. The most of the buildings of the, the Palace of Westminster were medieval or buildings that have been built in the, the 17th and 18th centuries. The place was actually, frankly, a bit of a mess. It was a very incoherent plan of buildings of different materials of different times, looked after by a whole load of different institutions. Some of those institutions, like the House of Commons and the House of Lords, were actually much too large for the, for the medieval buildings where they were trying to sit. And the people that were servicing them were running around doing all sorts of stuff. And in 1834, a disastrous fire took place, started by accident when actually, interestingly, someone was destroying one of the records, the historic records of Parliament, not actually documents, but wooden things called tally sticks, 
which were a form of recording the financial accounting, some of them going back to the Middle Ages. Someone was burning tally sticks in a furnace in one of the basements within the Palace of Westminster. The fire just got much, much too hot. It actually expanded out of the furnace. It caught fire to adjacent buildings and rapidly consumed a very large amount of the complex of the Palace of Westminster. It was a miracle that the Westminster Hall from the 11th century wasn't lost, that was saved, and part of the undercroft of the, of the chapel, but the rest of the historic complex was lost. It's one of the great disasters. One of the only good things that can be said about it was the way the wind seems to have been blowing that night. The wind was blowing towards the east rather than towards the west. And the jewel tower, standing some distance away on the western side of the complex, wasn't affected. So quite miraculously, the records for the House of Lords that were kept in the jewel tower were not affected by the fire, and they have survived. The historic records have survived, many of them, down to this day. By contrast, the records of the House of Commons, which were kept within the main buildings of the Palace of Westminster were almost all lost in the fire of 1834. It was a true disaster. Wow, what a real tragedy for historians to lose all these records of what went on. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, literally the memory of the nation was lost, was, was decimated at that time. How many hundreds of years of discussions? Oh, undoubtedly many centuries. I mean, this is going to be going back to the Middle Ages. And there are certainly there are records, you know, from the 15th, you know, it's probably even some of the 14th centuries that, that have survived, which, you know, have been kept. But the, the, but the records of the commons and the records of the various committees of the House of Commons, they completely were lost. So what a fortunate thing it was that even this quite, you know, small tower you know, which wasn't built as a record repository, they'd had to make quite a lot of changes to try to get it fitted up for that purpose. And it was never ideal, but it did have the one really great benefit that it wasn't adjoining any of the other buildings. And so actually it was saved from the fire. But I mean, often I wonder what would have happened if the wind had just been blowing the other way on that terrible night. Mm. The jewel tower and its documents could have been lost Westminster Abbey could have been lost, standing right next to it, and other buildings of the old Houses of Parliament might have been preserved. But as it happens, even the ones that were not completely gutted by the fire, the decision was taken that quite a lot of that would be swept away. They would keep Westminster Hall, the cloister, and the undercroft of the chapel, but the rest of it would be replaced by the building that we now know, um, which is uh, where the, 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 the House of Commons and Lords and the par institution of Parliament is still kept, the 19th century Houses of Parliament. And this is where the surviving records are kept, uh, right at, in the bottom of the building, effectively? They are. At the very beginning of this, you referred to where the Jewel Tower sits as being immediately opposite a part of the House of Parliament called the Victoria Tower. And if anyone is imagining the Houses of Parliament, you probably will be thinking of the Bell Tower, which we think of as Big Ben. Now now it's been renamed the Elizabeth Tower, you know, which has got the pointy roof. But at the other end, the southern end of the complex, there's a much taller rectangular tower with four pinnacles, and that is the Victoria Tower. And the Victoria Tower is substantially used as it was built as a brick-lined 
repository for records. So again, it's fireproof and they are kept still in there. I've had the privilege of actually being taken around for a private tour to actually see where the, some of the records are kept. And they showed me the people from the Parliamentary Records Office. You know, it was wonderfully interesting. They, they got out for, for me some of the records that had formerly been kept in the Jewel Tower and showed me where they're kept now. So that's where they are. So the Jewel Tower just wasn't needed anymore. The Victoria Tower is massively bigger than the Jewel Tower was. So the documents were finally taken out in the 1860s when the Victoria Tower was finished. Now this moves us on to our third use of the Jewel Tower, which from 1869 to 1938 was about accuracy and and record keeping in a way, just as we've been discussing. But tell us what job the Jewel Tower carried out during this particular third period. Yeah, this is a wonderfully unexpected and surreal one. What we often refer to this phase as is the Jewel Tower is part of the Office of Weights and Measures, Technically, actually, that's not its name. Technically, the Jewel Tower was the testing facility of the Board of Trade Standards Department. But weights and measures is actually a good way of thinking about it, because what the Jewel Tower existed to do was to be the place where definitive values would be given to measures of, of dimension, such as inches, yards, feet. The Jewel Tower would be where that would happen. Weight, so the weight of pounds and ounces, as it were, and volumes, so pints and quarts and things. The Jewel Tower was the place where those definitive values were worked out. And as well as containing quite sort of elaborate balancing mechanism for some of these things, the Jewel Tower also contained an archive of both the modern, up-to-date and historic objects that actually encapsulated all of these things. So there would actually be a physical thing that would be exactly the length of a foot. And this is the official version. This is how big a foot is. Now, hopefully, I mean, some people will get some idea of why this kind of thing would matter. But the basic reason for it is that actually having an official volume or or weight or measurement actually is quite useful in protection against fraud. That If you're supposed to buy something that is supposed to be a pint of a certain commodity or a liquid, and actually someone gives you short measures, literally, you know, they want to skimp on this, you can actually take them, yeah, have it taken up by the Board of Trade Standards Department that would would say to the person, you know, selling this, actually, no, you are cheating your customers. You are not giving them what they're paying for, what they're asking for. And interestingly, for centuries... This has been an important function of government. I've encountered it in all sorts of funny places. Once, many years ago, just anecdotally, I was on holiday in Italy and I went to the city of Modena in the centre of Italy. And on the outside of Modena Cathedral, carved into the stonework, there are a whole number of these little slots, which are actually supposed to be, you know, the value of a foot or the value of a yard or or whatever. I can't remember what the Italian units of measurement would have been. But, you know, that was there, it was official, and someone could come along and actually test something against these official values. That's exactly what the Board of Trade Standards Department at the Jewel Tower exists to do. 
Before the Jewel Tower had this designation as a, as a place to have official weights and measurements and volumes and, and all these sorts of things, was potential fraud in pubs and bakeries and wherever else you need to buy things that depend on weights and measures, was it rife in London? I'm absolutely certain that fraud continued even after the Jewel Tower was set up, but there it was, it was the official facility. And I have to say that the use of the Jewel Tower in the 19th century was not the first time that something like this had existed. I mean, some of the historic standards that were kept within the building actually dated back many centuries, I think back to as far as the 16th century. So it wasn't a new thing, but we don't know where they were kept. In the Jewel Tower in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, they were brought together And they were brought together in the Jewel Tower. Actually, originally, it was a quite good thing to do. It's a building with quite thick stone walls. So it actually provides a reasonably stable internal environment. It's reasonably free from fluctuations in temperature, which might have an effect on the delicate weighing of the balance that you would need to do to actually determine some of of these standards. So originally, that was a quite good thing to do. And it's important, I think, to make the point that This wasn't just a quite small parochial thing. Everyone's heard of imperial measurements, and this this is what we're actually talking about. These were the measurements of an empire, and the Jewel Tower was the place from which those measurements were sent out. So the decisions that were taken here would actually have an effect all the way across the world. Can we see, as a visitor, some of the actual weights and measures that were the template for feet, inches, you know, volumes and all this sort of thing in the Jewel Tower today? We have a few surviving. We don't have some of the ones for measurement, as it were, but I think we actually do have some of the containers that were used for volume, for liquid volumes, and they're actually displayed on the ground floor of the Jewel Tower. And they're actually very handsome brass things to to see. So they give some idea of how this would work. And in the guidebook for the Jewel Tower, we found an absolutely wonderful historic photograph from I think the first years of the 19th century that show the ground floor fitted up with very elaborate weights and balances. And it's it's, it's actually some stenciled writing on the wall that talks about four testing liquid measures. So the building itself was really quite heavily used and it looks very odd to see all these modern in a medieval building, but nevertheless, that's where it was. Unfortunately, there were some changes taking place around the outside of the Jewel Tower that made it less and less suitable. And in particular, I've already made some reference to the fact that there's a road running between the Jewel Tower and the Palace of Westminster called Abingdon Street. Abingdon Street was actually laid out while the weights and measures were in, and it led south to a junction to go onto Lambeth Bridge. We know that in the 1920s, traffic was getting more and more substantial down Abingdon Street. And this was causing an increase in the level of vibration experienced even within the Jewel Tower itself. So there are more and more complaints that say, okay, this building used to be perfect and it was really quiet around here. Now there's traffic rumbling around. It's actually causing vibrations. And we just can't make the kind of delicate balances that we would need to do. We've got to go somewhere else, got to go somewhere a bit quieter. So it actually starts in the 1920s that the function is moving out from the Jewel Tower a bit down to Teddington in southwest London. And after 1938, I'm afraid to say the Jewel Tower was abandoned completely. Just as we sort of round out our discussion about the Jewel Tower, Jeremy, when you consider it's surrounded by the splendour of the Houses of Parliament, 
You could argue that maybe the Jewel Tower is this quite small, quite austere, maybe slightly unremarkable building, but what are its architectural merits today and how these fit into the wider story of Westminster? Well, as a surviving medieval building that's had some changes made to it, but is still substantially as it was built, that's a quite rare thing. That's quite remarkable and particularly remarkable in London where you know, whole areas were lost to the Great Fire of London, you know, and other things like that. So that's a quite big deal. And as I've said earlier in this podcast, I think the interior, particularly of the ground floor, is quite elaborate and is beautiful, no doubt about it. The rest of it, yes, it's quite plain, undeniably, and, you know, lacking in some of the fine detail. But if you know what you're looking for, it will tell you something. You know, as a side issue, within the world of architectural history, there's a saying that sometimes is uh, is brought out that was uh, first said by the uh, great architectural historian Sir Nicholas Pevsner. And he said, a bicycle shed is a building. Lincoln Cathedral is a piece of architecture, which he meant that Lincoln Cathedral has an interest as well as a high quality that actually set it apart from just the run-of-the-mill structures like bicycle sheds. Bicycle sheds are not worth bothering about. Lincoln Cathedral is the kind of thing that, that actually is repays study. And I hope I've made the point that actually even a building that's relatively plain, like the Jewel Tower, actually has a whole number of meanings which are conveyed in its building fabric as well as in the documents around it. And that actually, if you take the time to investigate it, it can tell you some things that, that actually are quite profound. So what can we learn from a trip to the Jewel Tower? Well, I think you'll learn quite a lot about the individual building itself. But most importantly, I think what you will learn and hopefully find interesting is some of the institutional history of our country. Some of these institutions are well known. I hope that many people will know about Parliament. I hope many people will know about the monarchy. But the idea of, for, for example, of weights and measures, I think will probably come as a relatively you know, new thing to other people. And they may be even entertained by the fact that weights and measures happened in the same building where some of the most exotic and, and expensive items of the medieval monarchy had historically been kept and looked after. That's a very odd story to tell, and I find it very interesting. It's talking about, you know, the richness of, of our history. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll take a look at the important and often overlooked role played by monastic servants. So I don't think they've been given enough attention, and there is a mass of evidence if you know where to look, showing just how integral they were to the function of monasteries at every single level. Thanks for listening. See you next time.